It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. And then there was a deal. Finally, a deal. That's right. This week, it felt like the House and the Senate appropriators and then Speaker Moore and President Phil Berger were going back and forth for a long period of time to negotiate their versions of the budget. But they have come to an agreement, which means we are now on to the next phase of going to the governor. So as we are recording this podcast on Thursday morning from Winston-Salem, by the way, we're at a conference for a client, the North Carolina Travel Industry Association, who sponsors this podcast. The governor, as we are recording this, is pouring through this $25.7 billion budget, and we are now getting into where the rubber hits the road, right? By sometime next week, we're going to know whether or not they will be cutting a deal with the governor or whether they're going to be relying on some Democrats to pass a budget that the governor may veto. The House and the Senate have brought us to the process we are now. Now they join forces and they're going to negotiate with the governor. They know he's going to have some counter proposals on this line item, that line item. But they want the governor to sign this budget and then we are just moving on to redistricting. It is a little bit different because when the Senate brought forth their budget, it released online. Everybody got to see, the public got to see what their proposal was. The House did the same. It released. Now with the House and the Senate's joint budget proposal, it is not online and they are being very quiet about what is in that final plan. Very quiet. I might be getting too excited here, but I have this vision, maybe a dream, that Governor Cooper, Senator Phil Berger, Speaker Tim Moore walk outside of the governor's mansion and hold a press conference and say, we have a deal after three years of not having your standard budget. How refreshing would that be? It would be refreshing, and I think it's possible. All indications are that the General Assembly really has put a thoughtful document together. They are sending over budget that definitely has different priorities than the governor. The governor's always been for some form of Medicaid expansion. We know he's going to want higher raises for state employees, but it feels to me as if there is a margin to work with. I would agree with that. I believe both chambers have indicated that they know the governor may not agree with their tax plan. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they have made it very clear they're willing to negotiate on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. We heard Senator Brent Jackson say last week, everything is on the table. We saw budget documents from the House and Senate floating around that had some special provisions about reining in the executive power. We talked a lot about that on the podcast. We haven't seen the document. It is a private document at this point, that will be number one, right? Don't rein in uh, Governor Cooper's executive power. So I think for those sorts of provisions, those are political arguments. And since both chambers have already voted on their versions of the budget, you've already got people 
voting for or against that on record. And so the goal there has been accomplished. What do you think the timeline is going to be from here? You've got any sense of when they're expecting the governor to come back with some counter proposals? Negotiations start this coming week. What's your sense of that? My sense is as good as the next person's, Mm -hmm. which is that we would hope that it would be a quick process. All indications are that it's going to be quick, but I don't know. We don't know. We could have a deal next week. We could be going into the holidays without a budget. There seems to be, you know, as we indicated, there are some plan Bs, even some plan Cs. Many budgets have been put on the table. We may do that. I just hope that uh, we come to an agreement, we get a budget, and the state can move forward. Talking more about those executive powers on Monday, the governor vetoed Senate Bill 360, which would rein in some of the attorney general's powers. We talked about that on the podcast. And you called the veto on that podcast. Very expected. Yeah, very expected. The Senate did not hold any votes this week. The House only voted on Wednesday. And aside from the big budget news, the only other big ticket item that folks were looking at was the House ABC committee meeting. Yeah, the Alcohol Beverage Control Committee, chaired by Representative Tim Moffat from Henderson County. He called a meeting on Wednesday, and he also invited his Senate counterpart, Senator Todd Johnson, who chairs the Senate Commerce Committee, which oversees ABC in that chamber. And if you were in any way working on alcohol-related bills, we are two lobbyists that work on that issue, you were in that General Assembly auditorium, and it was drama. It was, and I believe that at the end of the committee, Chairman Moffat said, I'm more disappointed than I was when this started. There are some interesting dynamics, and one is the distributors who distribute liquor across the state had their attorney speak for them instead of someone high up in their company, and I don't think that came across as well as it would have been if someone else got up there and said, yeah, I lead this company. I agree. The issue that Chairman Moffat was wanting to get to the bottom of is the liquor shortage and how it's affecting North Carolina. We have a control system and we know that consumers, including legislators, are going to their local ABC store and there is empty shelves. There are brands that are hard to stock. Restaurants are complaining about this and there are arguments all over the map. Is it because we're coming out of COVID-19 and the pandemic and there has been a rush on certain alcohol? People are stocking up on alcohol. I think it's like toilet paper and Jack Daniels is what people have been really buying. There is a glass shortage that is affecting the distillers getting their product in a bottle. There is a truck driver shortage, an employee shortage all around. And it really is affecting 
the entire country. But there is some complaints in North Carolina. There are interest groups that would like to take North Carolina from a control system to a private system. The narrative is our liquor stores, our ABC stores are short on alcohol because of this delivery system that we have, because of the ABC system. Those that are working within the ABC system, including Terrence Merriweather, who is the acting commissioner, stood up and said, you know, we're not the only state. I think that Terrence Merriweather did a very good job in explaining the commission's position. But LBNB, when they sent their attorney up, it seems to me that he was just arguing points of the contract. And Representative Moffitt, very frustrated. Senator Johnson asked a question saying, why is it that South Carolina doesn't have the problems North Carolina has? They have bourbon on the shelves. And the attorney said, respectfully, I disagree with you. I think they do have these problems in South Carolina. And then Chairman Moffitt said, you can respectfully disagree with me. That's fine. It's not wise, but it's fine. And (laughs) there was a cited example of there is some billboards that are popping up along the North Carolina border. South Carolina is advertising in North Carolina that you can come and get bourbon in South Carolina. So, yeah, I don't know how wise that was to, to disagree in such a legalistic way with the chairman. There was a plea from Representative Pat Hurley, who sits on the House ABC committee, and she is a staunch supporter of our control system. She's a teetotaler, too, by the way. Very much has concerns about a private system. She pleaded with LBNB. She pleaded with the commission, fix this, because I don't like this narrative out there that we need to privatize the system. What's next? So at the end of the committee, Representative Bowles made a motion to refer this matter to governmental operations. So that is the new GovOps group that is doing what was the work of PED, the Program Evaluation Division. So they're going to take a deep dive into this issue. And so I think over the next few months, we will see more information come out about this. We will. And they will be engaging the North Carolina Association of ABC boards. And they testified as well. We represent them. And and I thought that the president did a good job of saying, yes, we, we are frustrated by the system. And we do want our consumers to be able to buy alcohol. And, and she tried to put it in some context, but it seems like the ire of the committee was focused on the distributor and the commission. It can be confusing because it is so layered. Our system in North Carolina is hard to understand. Mm-hmm exactly how it works and the problems are layered. So I think it will be interesting to see what GovOps comes up with. This week we sat down with Senator Sidney Batch to talk about her work in the North Carolina Senate and also her work from the North Carolina House gives a great comparison. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. 
Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Sydney Batch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. To start us off, tell us about your district. Where is it? What makes your district special? So I represent Senate District 17, so it's Southern Wake County. I think what makes it special is it's actually a microcosm of the entire state, right? So it's a purple district. So there's rural, and then there's also urban. So I represent the cities of Cary, Holly Springs, Apex, Fuquay, Verena, Willow Spring, and it's a rapidly growing area. Uh, but what's really interesting about it is that there are people who have lived there for generations, and their families have lived here. And then we have all of the people that are moving into North Carolina from up north, mid west etc and so it's a confluence of really different views but i think that that's what our state makes up so if you want to look at what north carolina really is about you can find both rural and urban in both of those uh, political views and everything else that makes north carolina great in my district so you are in your second term at the general assembly you served in the house you served you are now serving in the senate after senator sam Searcy stepped down How did you decide to get into politics? It's a great question. So I was living my best life with my kids when they (laughs) were five and seven when I was asked for the second time to run for office. And for those out there, um, it's a little unknown fact that needs to be more known that women have to be asked usually seven times to run for office. Um, So I was, that was the third time that they asked me to run for office. And I was, you know, I'm a small business owner, work in a small law firm, and I was busy raising my kids, trying to get through life in the day, et cetera. They asked me to run, and I really started thinking about the fact that I work with people in family law and child welfare law, work with people at the worst time in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so they come to me, and we try and navigate them through um, divorce, custody, child welfare issues, et cetera. And what I found over time in working with them is that they had all of these issues, and they are systemic issues that could be changed at the state level, mm-hmm. but none of those changes were being made. And so I decided to take the skill set that I have um, as a social worker, as a lawyer, um, as a child welfare law specialist, and try and apply that into the work that I do at the General Assembly. Because I think there are a lot of people will say the people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, our General Assembly is not set up for people to most people to actually run since it's a part time legislature. So at least I could take the voices and advocate for those who I've represented over the years and have seen some systemic issues that need to change. That's why I step forward. So you are a triple Tar Heel, is that correct? I am. They have all my money and all of my love. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about what got you into practicing law and how you use your social work degree? Yeah, I actually use my social work degree more than probably my law degree on any given day of the week with regards to some of the skills that you need to work with people, especially in politics and even working with your constituents. A lot of people don't actually listen, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of people listen to respond, but don't actively listen to try and understand a problem and problem solve. So I tell my kids all the time, uh, they know that their dad, my my husband's one of my law partners, like we're problem solvers. That's what we do every single day. And it's no different in the General Assembly. And so I think that the skills that I have from law and social work really um, blend together because in policy work, at least we should care at the legislature, is that you're looking at policies that actually work and then you've got to marry that with the law. And so I think that both of those degrees work really well together. And then you can use that evidence-based research to inform policy. So we're not just spending money on bills and, and in passing legislation that is effectively not going to work. 
So you spent one term in the House. You go over to the Senate. Can you talk a little bit, share with listeners, kind of culturally, what is the difference you found serving in the House versus the Senate? Uh, It's night and day. I mean, it is. They couldn't be more different. And oftentimes, you know, I have a lot of really good um, friends and colleagues that I miss in the House, and I never see them, like ever. You you could go the entire session and not interact with anyone in the Senate unless your bill's moving through one of the chambers and vice versa. Um, In the House, right, there's a ton of people, Mm -hmm. and, and there are significantly more bills, right, because of the sheer size of it. And so one of the biggest differences is that when you're in committee, the committees are larger, and everybody talks, and the committees will run on and run, run on and run on, and so does session. And so session, you know, I think even with the budget debate in the Senate, Let's, you would get to the point, not everybody talks, there's a very specific decorum, and it runs like a, I mean, it is a tight ship. And leadership in both sides, uh, Democratic and Republican in the Senate, run a very tight ship. The House, not so much, right? It's like, get in where you fit in. And when you're in session, it's going to be sometimes hours long. The Senate, I think with our budget, we had three bills, and we, and we talked about the budget, and we were out within two hours. That does not happen in the House. So I think that the Senate does allow for people who are professionals who are still working for a living who are not retired to be able to try and manage both better. Mm-hmm. I've had significantly more time trying to, or time that I could dedicate in my practice and then also on legislating and policies than I did in the House because we spend less time actually in session and in committees. And I will say that in the Senate, we could have a little bit more discussion on some things, <laughs> right. right? Like, right. I mean, we don't have the Goldilocks somewhere in the middle from the House to the Senate. We, the Senate tends to just be very quick about things. Yeah. And I never think that a floor debate ever changes anybody's mind. So I'm fine with that when we're yeah. in on the floor. But in committees, I think we could probably stand for some more robust debate. Yeah. So, I mean, even tradition in the Senate, I I believe it was Senator Stan Bingham who built the ox meter. And Mm -hmm. that is to kind of embarrass the senator who talks too much. Exactly. You you have not won the ox meter. I have not won the ox meter. I believe that I do most of my work uh, behind the scenes before I even step onto the floor. And so Uh you will rarely hear me talk um, Mm -hmm. about anything because I just, again, I don't know that there's a whole lot of value. Um, in talking on the floor. People know what they're going to do before they get there. If you want to talk, you talk in committee and you talk to people off the record. That's a lot of what I do is not in committees. I go and talk to colleagues and see whether or not we can negotiate and and work on bills behind the scenes. So uh, 120 members in the House, 50 in the Senate. Is there more collegiality in the Senate? I think so, yes. And I think it's part because it's much smaller, right? So you yeah. have fewer people that um, you get to know each other pretty quickly. The committees in and of themselves only have 10, 15 members. And so when you work with people the, at the same time and it's so much smaller, you have the ability to get to know them a lot better. Mm-hmm. And so while I was in the house, it was um, you could definitely find a lot more diversity in the house with regards to where you want to um, where you want to spend your time and who you want to spend it with. The Senate's a little less so, but I do think that we actually have a uh, we work well together and better together in the Senate than what my experience was in the House. Okay. Now say one thing you miss about the House. What do I miss about the House outside of my colleagues? Because I yeah. think that it is hilarious. Like I think that <laughs> so, so the Senate can can be stuffy sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean they. There are some people that jokes do not uh, go over well, and there's just a lot. 
they're, they're just stuffy. So I miss the house and the fact that there were members that were hilarious and committees, we would laugh and like they're, we were just more jovial. Um, so I'm not saying the Senate doesn't take themselves too seriously, but I do think that there are times where we could have a little bit more levity there than we did in the house. So let's talk about your style of legislating. You mentioned this in the last question that you like to work behind the scenes. How do you approach legislation, especially with a specialty in child welfare law, family law? How do you approach what you're going to work on and how you're going to go about it? So I think in politics, there are two types of politicians. They're peacocks and they're peahens. Mm-hmm. Peacocks want to be out there showing everybody everything. Hey, look at me. This is my great idea. And then they're peahens. The people actually get work done behind the scenes don't necessarily need to take credit for things. I think we need more peahens. We have plenty of peacocks down there. <laughs> um, but with that said, I think that you have to try and figure out how to navigate. It's very obvious who is in control in the state, right? If you're a Democrat in either the Senate or the House, you're still not in the majority and your bills are likely not going to move, especially if you're in a competitive district like me, that's politics. It's not gonna change anytime soon. So if you really care about moving legislation, you have to get out of the way and allow for other people to actually be the messenger. So what I've done is I've built, I've built in the Senate in particular coalitions with regards to Republicans and work with them, knowing that I'm, my name's not gonna be on a bill, no one's going to know that I had any involvement in it. And I've worked behind the scenes with my colleagues to try and change parts of legislation or just wholesale, given them legislation that I have filed, and they just take and they run. Um, and, you know, some people are like, that's ridiculous. No, well, it's ridiculous, but, like, do you want to be happy and actually get some significant policy done, or do you want to stand in the way and have a temper tantrum? And I just i am not a temper tantrum type person. So I've been able to get some legislation done in the Senate by allowing my uh, Republican colleagues to take the lead on it. And now good legislation, especially in the, in the field of child welfare, um, has passed because we worked together uh, and nobody was worried, or at least I was not worried about taking credit for it. So one senator who mentioned working with you uh, was Senator Danny Britt. He came on the podcast and talked about... You your... can view our, or you can listen to our other podcasts. I saw Danny Britt. <laughs> we mentioned Danny Britt in every episode. Brian does. He's obsessed with them. <laughs> Yeah, I'm interested in him. <laughs> He's a fascinating person. But Senator Britt said that you contributed a lot to his formation of Senate Bill 300. How is it, how do you go about engaging someone who is writing a bill? Kind of give us a peek behind the curtain as far as, okay, so you know a legislator on the Republican side is working on criminal justice reform, or maybe they're working on a domestic violence bill or a sexual assault bill. How do you go about engaging them? Is it just calling up, calling them up, saying, hey, I'm Senator Sidney Batch, and I have an expertise in this, and I'd like to come meet with you? How does this work? Yeah, so depending on whether or not you had a relationship before I've had, I was fortunate when I was in the House to have some relationships with senators, and so I wasn't brand new right to the process. It was a lot easier for me to step into that spot. But one of the things that I think is really important is that when I find someone who has an ear is working on a bill specifically, I mean, for instance, Danny with SB 300, I walked up to him in one of our committees afterward and said, hey, can I talk to you about something? And we did this on several occasions. Um, It's really great when you have an attorney who practices in the area of law that they're working in and I can, we can cut out all of the, let me explain what the law is supposed to do and how you practice law and what this will do in a courtroom because both of us have life experiences and what 
what we do to be able to say, hey, this is what the issue is. We can spot it very quickly and we can navigate in that space. And so with um, him in particular and 300, we just, over the course of time, we're texting, we're calling each other. I was sending him language. He sent me some language back. We had numerous phone calls and finally got to a point where we could support it. And, you know, the one thing that I think is really important, people don't realize, is that 95% of the legislation that gets passed, right, is bipartisan, almost 100%. There's only that 5% social issues and really, like, hot-button topics in politics um, as the bills to go through, some of them being messaging bills for the next political campaign, some of them just being fundamentally different as to how we see the world, um, and that's perfectly fine. But Senate Bill, bill 300 could have been HB 805, which was um, Speaker Moore's riot bill, and mm-hmm. all he, but he didn't get any of the great criminal justice reforms in there. And so when Senator Britt and I were working on that, I, you know, I, I candidly told him, I said, I want to support it. I want my Democratic colleagues to support it. I think it's a great bill, but I do think that it's going to be problematic. We can't support it if you have a poison pill in it. And so he was willing to work with us, which I really appreciated, to sit down and work with Senator Mohammed, myself, and Senator Fitch on a lot of the changes that we needed to make in order for everybody to support it. And so then you saw a bill, got, it, it got increasingly better. So you had every single person in the Senate pass SB 300 mm-hmm. and still stand behind it. Whereas we could have taken our balls, gone home, kept our, our good ideas. Um, mm-hmm. But what would that have done for the state of North Carolina and, and all of the citizens that we represent? I don't think it's worth it. So if you just sit down and you put your political differences aside and you actually talk about the policy, that's when we get really great legislation passed. And that's hard, right? So you go back to your caucus and you say, hey, I'm working with the other side. And and I imagine it's hard for Senator Britt saying, hey, this is what you guys might want, but we're working with the other side. That trust, I guess it all comes goes down to just building a relationship and, and just trying to work together and not burning each other too, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I tell people all the time, it's really hard to hate up close. That's so if right. you get to know people, right, and you get to know that you don't go into a conversation assuming that they hate you or they have ill intent, but trying to understand where they are and meet them where they are, it's a lot easier to then at the end of the day say, I want to work with you, right? You may not agree with me all the time, but there are things that all of us can, for the most part, can agree on. And that's obviously proven in 95% of the legislation that we pass. And so I don't go into relationships, even with people who have political differences or have done things to me, you know, in past campaigns. And I don't, I don't enter those conversations with them um, who leave politics, you know, or leave the political side and go into the lobbying side. I still am a professional. Like, you did your job, I did mine. Will we break bread together? Probably not. But can we get some legislation done? Absolutely, if it's something that we both can drive, you know, forward together and and, and chart a, a course that's going to be better for North Carolinians. So you just have to be you have to be willing to actually have difficult conversations, but also in a very like, respectful manner. Mm-hmm. How did you get into your specialty of law practice? Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah. So when I was in college, I was trying to go back and forth as to what I wanted to do. Knew I wanted to actually um, work with disadvantaged populations, et cetera. So I thought about social work. Talked to a lot of social workers. They said, oh, you can't do anything. You got to change the system outside it. You can't change it within. And I was like, well, that's fine, but I'm going to do both. So that's why I ended up doing the law, the dual degree with law and social work, because I wanted to have the policy and the background, the understanding and the skill set, but I wanted to marry that with law. And so when I started practicing law, I've always been very interested in child welfare law, um, family law, et cetera. And I've used those skills in social work and law to go ahead and at least 
guide me through not only representing my clients and, and hope, helping one family at a time, but realize that at the state level, you could help hundreds of thousands of individuals. And so I really felt like you needed to have, I needed to have the background and the skill set that was not going to just come naturally with a law degree. Not that you can't be a lawyer and do all the things that I'm doing, but I do think that there is a lot to say about working in a field and having the respect of social workers and other people in the child welfare space. Um, and frankly, it's been really helpful with regards to building relationships with my Senate colleagues because they know that I practice child welfare law. They know that because I am a specialist in the area, because I work with social workers and I, and I see legislation from a stakeholder standpoint. I don't think that we as legislators should just be behind the closed doors and actually drafting legislation and then going to talk to stakeholders. Mm -hmm. You know, the bill that, uh, Senate Bill 693 that just passed, there were, there were eight stakeholders that I worked with for over 150 hours on that bill before we even filed it. Mm -hmm. And by the time it was done, it was 250 hours. But we worked with stakeholders the entire time because they're the ones who are actually in the field and closest to all of the issues. And so using that skill set and being able to say, hey, this is what I do, gives me, I think, more credibility with my colleagues because they know that that's the area that I practice. And so, and I'm also a stay in your own lane type person. Don't come and talk to me about taxes. I mean, you can talk to me about it, but I'm not <laughs> going to pretend that I'm a tax expert. Um, I don't know anything about agriculture in the sense that I need to say whether or not this biodigester is better than some other alternative. I will listen and I will learn, but I don't pretend to be an expert in the things that I don't know. I wish we as politicians could probably do that more often because the great part about the General Assembly is we have a lot of people from different walks of life, and that's what makes a great um, legislature. But sometimes people veer out of their lane and think they're experts in areas that they're not. So your last question is our magic wand question. Our politics are increasingly divided. If you could fix one thing in our political system right now, what would it be? So I wish we could return to a time where you could disagree without being disagreeable. I think that social media has been one of the biggest divides um, of, and frankly, is stirring a pot that's, that is unnecessary in the political world. So I would say either tamping down on or trying to find some level of you know, truth in politics and social media. Um, it is very easy for people to attack online and to say whatever they want. Um, and it makes it really hard for good people to run for office because if you don't have a thick skin and if you're not willing to ignore a lot of what happens and, and it is nasty, I mean, if anyone gets mailers and, you know, during political season, most of them are untrue, right? So there's not truth in politics. Um, maybe if we could have my magic wand, maybe it's truth in politics because I think that if we actually just talk about the policies instead of attacking people all the time, we'd be in a much better position to actually get legislation done. Yeah. I agree. Brian. 100%. Somebody, some random person was fighting with Brian like two weeks ago on Twitter and I saw it because I get tweet notifications for him. So I texted him like, so we're fighting with trolls on Twitter tonight. That's what we're doing. <laughs> well, well, and the thing is for me, like, I just, I don't engage, right? I mean, this is the thing. No response is a response and it's a powerful That's right. one. That's right. right. And so I don't have to give air and energy to people who, who, regardless of what I say, will never agree with me. I don't, and they're like, well, do you block things on your Facebook page of things that people say? I'm like, no, I mean, say what you want. I know who I am. 
And yes, it's annoying. And yes, there are days where they, they're better than, than others. And thank you for calling me every name but the child of God. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I just have to realize that one, it's your right, regardless of, and you can be wrong. And I just have to move on and not give energy and air to that. It's very hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all know it's hard when you're in the yeah. public eye and people like to attack you. Um, but, I, but I do wish that we were at a time in which we could sit down, talk, disagree, not be disagreeable and wipe, you know, like for the last 10 years, it has just been increasingly divisive. And I think that what that hurts most is the legislation and, and frankly, the state of North Carolina and the United States in that regard. Well, Senator Sidney Batch, we appreciate everything you do for your district, everything you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. We really enjoyed talking to Senator Batch and getting her history and how she mixes her profession with legislating. That MSW law degree is just so interesting to me and how that gives you perspective. And I think she's only one of like 15 people in the state who has that child welfare specialization. When she does speak in committee, people do turn around and listen. And while her name isn't on legislation, you certainly do feel her impact on legislation. And it was great that she shared with us just how she does work behind the scenes. Seems to have no problem with her name not being on a bill but she is getting good legislation enacted by working with Republicans in the Senate. Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. I think we're, we have now perfected this. This is great. <laughs> so the tweet of the week I chose this week is from Representative Allison Dahl, one of my very favorite people. And there was this back and forth with the North Carolina House Dems account, Twitter account. There is a Republican strategist out of Charlotte who was tweeting about Biden's approval numbers and said this is bad news for North Carolina Democrats. And then the House Democrats Twitter account tweeted that guy's mugshot. And Representative Dahl tweeted back and said, as a member of North Carolina House Dems, I request you remove this post. It's rude and inappropriate. And that took some courage. It was a classy move by Representative Dahl, not a classy move by the Democratic Twitter page. Did the tweet come down? It looks like it's down now. It was not down yesterday. Yeah. Well, good for her for calling it out. Legislators, individuals, they may be a member of one party or the other, but it's always refreshing to see when someone from that political party is willing to stand up in a public way Mm -hmm. and say, that's over the line. And we've seen this on both sides of the aisle, especially over the last four or five years as things have gotten really more toxic. Sure. Uh, it's refreshing to see when folks say, hey, political party that I'm affiliated with, 
knock it off. We have a programming update for you. We are taking Do Politics Better to the field. Yeah, we talked about it last week, right? We're going to do a kickball game. We've been working with Majority Leader John Bell, and we have a date we and time do. set. That is right. Our kickball game will be on Tuesday at 6 p.m. on the Legislative Mall. So please contact one of us if you'd like to play because we will be assigning teams beforehand. Yeah, so we're going to mix them up, right? We, like an automated system, yes. And we thought that was best. Yes. We, we, you know, you might have this idea that you've got eight folks, and we do have folks who have come up to us, either they've tweeted at us or they've sent us messages or they've stopped us in the building and said, yeah, I've got eight folks. Well, we're going to take those names we're going to mix them up because we really want this to, to have some mingling. We want lobbyists and legislators and the two chambers and the two parties to get together and play on a kickball team behind the General Assembly. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thanks to Majority Leader John Bell for getting us this time. And, permit. And permit. <laughs> yeah. So you have to have a permit to play kickball, I guess, on the on the mall send us a message there will be koozies there will be koozies we will have do politics better koozies for your coca-colas yes yes okay so we tweeted about this our recording studio for this podcast is in a hotel bathroom in downtown winston-salem at the kempton hotel which by the way is a great so nice great hotel i was told that the empire state building in new york city was based on the architecture here of this old hotel has a lot of history and it's we just had a great time but we were going to record in my hotel room but outside of my hotel room there is an air conditioning unit that is just loud and it was on the audio so we brought the studio into this little bathroom and we're looking at wallpaper and so if you're familiar with brian and i's relationship and you thought it couldn't get weirder it did (laughs) we have spent the last 45 minutes together in a bathroom recording but i i think the sound is great i really i really like the sound of our voices as it's coming through on the headphones (laughs) wow i love myself (laughs) yeah i mean maybe we should take this into the bathroom at at the office i don't think so yeah okay we won't do that that's all we got (laughs) yeah that's it i mean it's one of those weeks that feels like important news dropped Right. How everything's about the House and Senate coming to an agreement, the budget going over to the governor. Very important, but not a lot of news in other places. That's right. We were at the General Assembly, what, Tuesday night for a House Rules Committee, and there were no people there. Yeah. Very few legislators even showed up. And Representative Torbett tried to leave early. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He he presented his bills and walked out, high five some folks and, and left. And Chairman Hall said, Representative Torbett, we're not done. So he went back and sat down. But yeah, it's just been one of those weeks where it's been uh, kind of loose. And I think next week, we've had some clients ask us, well, what are we doing next week? Should we come be in the building? 
And we're like, next week, I think, is just going to be a waiting game. Sit on your hands. Sit on your hands. Watch the walks to the governor's mansion and the walks back. And maybe there will be some news here and there. But I think... And play a little kickball. Play a little kickball while we're waiting on the budget to come out. So that's our podcast for this week. Apologies to Senator Danny Britt. We just ran out of time. (laughs) (laughs) We ran out of time. But we'll get you next week. Please remember to share with your friends. Like us. Rate. Review. You can listen on whatever app you're listening to this podcast now on. We hope that you have a great weekend this weekend. We hope you have a great week next week. And remember to do politics better. See how you're wearing brown shoes with blue today? That looks better. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm a pretty complimentary person. (laughs) That's what you are. Oh, God, that is not a good photo of you. I don't need a good photo. I'm trying to help you. I want you to present yourself well on the internet, too. It's good. So, <laughs> look at you. There's the arm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs>